Now then, in John chapter 20, and as you read the other gospel accounts, what you discover is doubting disciples who become faithful followers. Doubting disciples who become faithful followers. And I want to speak under three headings, and the first is this this morning, seeing and believing. One of the things I love about the Bible is its honesty. It's a really honest book. It doesn't try to gloss over people's weaknesses. It portrays those men and women who the Lord uses, warts and all with all of their problems and all of their fears and all of their doubts and all of their struggles and all of their difficulties. And I love the honesty of the Bible in the way that God has recorded for us events about his people that show, show them to be just like us. Weak, vulnerable, frightened, lacking faith, slow to learn, struggling to understand how God works, sometimes convinced that God's plans must have gone horribly wrong. How could God possibly want this to have happened? But the encouragement in all of this is that these are the people that God has chosen to use. And we observe how God strengthens them and equips them so that he can continue to use them. All of this is seen, uh, clearly seen in the accounts of the four gospel writers in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John as they tell us about what happened after Jesus had risen from the dead on that first morning and thereafter. Now, during his time with his disciples, Jesus has told them repeatedly that he must die. But it just didn't get through to them. Maybe they thought he was speaking in some kind of parable whenever he said that. Surely, Jesus could not mean that he was literally going to die, at least not in the near future, surely. So maybe it's not that surprising that they missed completely both the foretelling of his death and that he said that three days later he would rise again. So when Jesus did rise the third day, they were all completely unprepared for it. And that comes across so clearly as you read through these four accounts of that resurrection morning. Well, there's going to be some pictures coming up on the screen just to help us perhaps uh, see, not just in our mind's eye, but help us to maybe understand some of the things that took place on that first morning. And we're going to draw from more than just John's gospel as we think about some of those things that the Bible records for us. So first of all, we read that a group of the women who were followers of Jesus arrived at the tomb on that first Sunday morning they came early and they were the first ones to arrive there were certain things that people did back then 
to prepare a person's body for burial. There hadn't been time to do it on that Friday evening. The Sabbath began at sunset on Friday. And the body had to be in the tomb by sunset. And so they hadn't been able to complete all the normal preparations. So at the very first opportunity when the Sabbath was over, they've come back and they've brought with them all of the spices and things that they would use to anoint the body to complete the preparations that there hadn't been time to do on Friday. Mark and Luke it is who tell us that they had with them the spices that were used for the anointing of the body. They were expecting to find Jesus exactly as they'd left him, dead in the tomb. That's what they expected to find. And it was as they were walking that they realised that what they hadn't thought about before they'd set off was how on earth they were going to move that huge stone that was acting as a door to the tomb. How on earth are we going to roll that stone back that's blocking the entrance? What they were not expecting to find was the stone already rolled away and the body of Jesus not there. And their first thought is that someone must have broken in and stolen the body away. Angels appear to them. It's the angels who've rolled back the stone. And it's the angels who declare to them that the reason Jesus isn't there is because he is risen from the dead. Now, Mark in his gospel shows us that at first... The women really weren't sure what to make of all of this. Well, you wouldn't be, would you? And they were very frightened. And they didn't, certain, they didn't dare to say anything to anyone at first. Then we read that Jesus appears to Mary, Mary Magdalene in the garden. And she is the first one to realise that Jesus really is alive. She's seen him. And with the other women they go back to tell the other 11 disciples. 11, of course, because Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, is no longer around. But we're told that as the women report what they've seen, the disciples don't believe them. And they dismiss their report as a fanciful story. Uh, perhaps they just looked on these women as being maybe just a bit emotional and delusional after all that they've been through. And yet the reality is it's these godly, faithful women who God has given the privilege of being the first of seeing and hearing of the fact of the resurrection. And it was one of these women who first saw the risen Christ on that morning. Well, we're not surprised to discover from what we know of Simon Peter as a character that when he heard this news, something stirs in him. Now, it's probably only about 36 hours since he was in that courtyard denying that he even knew Jesus. 
that surely is weighing very heavily upon him. And he is stirred to go and see what they're talking about. So he, and we believe it's the Apostle John, he's not doesn't name himself, but he almost certainly it was who ran to the tomb. They find it empty. And as they look inside the tomb, there are the grave clothes in the place where the body had been and the, the handkerchief that had been over his head neatly folded and, and laid down. And everything is just as the women had described. And so what do they do next? They just go home. They just go home. Because they don't know what to make of all of this. Now, they should have known better. They're the ones that Jesus has been teaching for the last three years. Repeatedly, he's told them, I'm going to die. Repeatedly, he's told them, the third day, I'm going to rise again. But they've just missed it completely. If you read through the four Gospels, you'll be forgiven for thinking that at this point, the disciples should be saying, but of course he's risen from the dead. He said that all along. Of course he has. They should be saying, but they're not. They're weak. They're vulnerable. They're frightened. They're lacking understanding. Struggling to see how it is that God can be working. Struggling to understand how it can be that all that they were hoping for has not gone horribly wrong. Surely it has. But then they meet him face to face. Now we read first of all that he appeared to two of his followers as they're walking home to a village just outside Jerusalem. Now they didn't realise it was him at first, just like Mary hadn't. But as they invite him into their home, they have something to eat and they see his hands as Jesus breaks the bread to give thanks. And then they know because they've seen. And they run back to Jerusalem and they start telling the disciples. And Mark tells us that they still refuse to believe. But Luke says as does John record for us, that as they're talking, Jesus appears right there in front of them all. And now they have to believe. And they do believe. Except for one. Thomas, you get his name, sorry. I didn't choose it for you. Doubting Thomas, I don't think you are really, are you? This one was. But can't we all understand Thomas's position? He wasn't there. And even with this bigger group of people, this growing number of people, all saying that they've seen Jesus, he remains resolute. Unless I can see and touch the scars in his body with my own hands and see the mark in his side, of course, referring to the Romans who pierced the side of Jesus with a spear while he was still on the cross. 
Unless I can see, unless I can touch, I will not believe. Well, the Lord knows best. He made Thomas wait eight days with his doubts and with his unbelief. I often wonder what, how that was for Thomas during that week. All the conversations that he was having with the disciples, I can imagine Peter just getting completely irate with him for not believing. I can imagine them just despairing, trying to convince him that what they were saying was true. And perhaps he's just becoming more and more stubborn and more and more entrenched in his refusal to believe. Not, none of us would be like that, of course, would we? But maybe he was. But then Jesus does return. And he appears in front of them again. And Thomas is there. And a mark of Christ's lordship is that he knows exactly what's been going through Thomas's heart and mind. Thomas, come here. Come here. I wonder, I wonder how Thomas came to Christ. A bit sheepishly feeling pretty, pretty foolish. But Jesus is so gracious. He's so kind. He's so gentle. He's so patient. Come on, Thomas. Here's, here's the scars you need to see. Come on. And Thomas can manage to do only one thing, but he does the right thing. He just acknowledges who Christ is. You are my Lord and you are my God. It's a very real, it's a very honest account in the Gospels of the disciples' reluctance to accept any of it as true. And then everything changes in an instant as they're all left in no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is alive. And from that moment on, are ready to risk their own lives for him, no matter what. And so, of course, <clears throat> here we have this, this whole central theme of the gospel, that Jesus, having died for our sins on the cross, also rose again from the dead. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But these accounts of how the disciples doubted the reports of Jesus being alive and how they only believed once they had seen him with their own eyes, once they'd been able to touch the scars with their own hands. This account, I would imagine, presents something of a problem and a difficulty for lots of people. How then can I possibly believe? How do you expect me to believe? Are you going to present Christ to me so that I can see him? So that I can touch him? And if no such evidence or proof is available to me, how do you expect me to believe? 
That's actually a very fair question, isn't it? It's a very reasonable question. Here is the question. And particularly for the older ones who are here. Can you believe without proof? Can you believe without what people would call proof? It seems that the disciples couldn't. Can you? Can I? Is it possible? Because, of course, lots of people today will tell you that that is precisely why they refuse to believe. You can't prove it. You can't show me. So I don't believe. Why should I? How can I? And that seems to be quite a reasonable thing to say on the face of it. How can you expect me to believe that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years later? When, when 2,000 years later, his, his own disciples wouldn't believe it on the day that it happened. And you expect me to believe it now, 2,000 years after the event. His own disciples wouldn't believe it on the very morning it happened. And people will say, how, how do you expect me to believe it? Well, it's a very good question. And some of you are probably thinking, that is a very good question. How on earth am I going to answer it? And it is a question that we have to address, isn't it? Now, here's the danger. The danger is to fall into the trap of thinking that the obligation now is upon us as Christians to provide the proof and to provide the answer to all of their arguments. That's the danger. How can, how can we expect anyone to believe unless we, do, unless we don't? That seems very reasonable. I want to answer that question with two words. The two words are these. Keep reading. Keep reading what? The Bible. Keep reading the Bible. Take on board all of what the Bible says, not just selected verses. Read the whole Bible. Take on board the whole counsel of God. That's where many Christians fall down. They hang their beliefs on selected verses that seem to fit their point of view. And they don't keep reading. First, keep reading beyond the Gospels. And what do you discover? Thousands of people who did not see Jesus. Thousands of people who never touched the scars. Believing and being saved on the day of Pentecost. How? Through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit of God within them. That's how. He did the convincing in them. Keep on reading. All through the Acts of the Apostles. All through the Apostles' letters. And what will you discover? Tens of thousands more. Jews, Gentiles, many who'd lived lives embroiled in pagan religion who never saw Jesus at all 
believing and being saved. How? Through the preaching of the gospel and through work of the work of God's spirit within them. That's how. Second, here's something else for you to think about. If being able to see and touch Jesus is so necessary, if that kind of proof is so necessary, why didn't Jesus hang around so that everyone could see him and touch him? Why didn't he? If that's so necessary, why didn't he stay here so that we have the proof? Because he didn't, did he? He only stayed on this earth for 40 days And then he went back to be with his father. Why didn't Jesus hang around so that people could see him and touch him in order that he might build his church that way? Well, actually, he tells us exactly why. And we just go back a couple of chapters in John's gospel to chapter 16. Because, you see, the answer to these questions is always keep reading. Keep reading the Bible. And the Bible will answer your questions. John chapter 16 at verse 4. These things I've told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you all of them. Of course, initially the disciples hadn't remembered. They'd forgotten. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. No, it's not, Jesus. It's it's to our advantage if you stay so that we can see you and touch you because that's how we believe. No, said Jesus. It's to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I depart... I will send him to you. What will the helper do? John 16 verse 8. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. There is something very necessary that needs to happen to anyone who's going to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is not an overwhelming burden of proof which God expects us to present to people. There is something very necessary that needs to happen to anyone who's going to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is something which only God himself can do. It is he in the person of his spirit who brings conviction of sin. It is he who brings people to repentance. It's he who convinces people about the righteousness that they need and causes them to realize that they don't have it and which may only be obtained through the merits of Christ. Jesus went away so that the helper would come and he it is who helps people to believe we heard it in the man's testimony last night 
he sat and started reading John's gospel. And the helper came to him and opened his mind, opened his heart, changed him completely. And as he read the Bible, he knew he needed Christ. And he saw and he believed. Because that's what the helper does. That's why he came. That's why Jesus sent him. You see, you must permit the Bible to be your trusted and reliable guide on these issues. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on those things which seem right in your own eyes. Trust God's word. Because people do believe without seeing. Now, I need the help of one of the boys or girls for one minute with something. Who wants to come and help me? All you have to do is stand here. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Is that a hand up? Sam? Do you mind if I just put a blindfold on you for a minute? Just come and stand here. I'm not, you don't have to do anything. Okay, I'm just going to put this on. I brought a big one so that we know you really can't see. There you go. Now, Sam, I'm just going to say something. Oh. Come a bit forward. I can't do it from that side. Now, I'm just going to say something to you. It's up to you what you do. Now, you really can't see now, can you? Okay. Right. Sam, in my hand, I've got a shiny one-pound coin. If you hold out your hand, I'll give it to you, and it's yours. Thanks, you can sit down. It's yours. <laughs> Question. Can you believe without seeing? Can you? Did he? If he hadn't believed me, would he have a pound coin in his hand right now? No. Can you believe without seeing? You can. You can. How do sinners see that they need to believe? It is not any proof of evidence that you can put before them. God does it God does it you see believing without seeing in large degree depends upon who's making the promise and who's doing the convincing now if Sam happened to be walking down Church Street in Liverpool 
and a stranger come up to him and said, Sam, come here, I'm going to put a blindfold on you. I'm holding out a He might have had second thoughts, and rightly so. But a large part of it for Sam was just, just then was because of who it was who was talking to him. And who it was who was doing the convincing. And that's it, you see. Believing without seeing depends upon who it is who's making the promises and who it is who's doing the convincing. And as we heard a few weeks ago in our morning series about this effectual call, you see, that's the issue. Yeah, there might be a preacher preaching. There might be someone else just sharing the gospel with you. You might be just sat on a bus or a train and someone sharing the gospel. But ultimately, it's about who is making the promise and who is doing the convincing. And you see, it's the helper who Jesus has sent who's doing the convincing. Back in John chapter 20, Jesus said these words to Thomas. Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Who here is a Christian? Is that not you? Is that not you? Have you seen him with your eyes? Have you touched the scars of his hands? Do you yet not believe? Why? How? Because the helper has come. And he's convinced you. With your eyes, you did not see Jesus being arrested at night in Gethsemane. With your ears, you did not hear him being mocked and laughed at by the Roman soldiers as they viciously beat him. You did not hear him remain silent as he offered no resistance. Because it was for this very thing he came into the world. You did not see him struggling to carry his cross to Golgotha. You didn't hear the crowd jeering. You didn't see or hear the nails being driven through his hands or his feet. You did not hear him praying for forgiveness for those who were doing all of these things to him. You didn't hear him promising the thief who was dying next to him that that very hour when that thief ended this life in this world, he would be with Christ forever in heaven. You didn't see the angels who moved the stone or hear them declare that he is not here, he's risen. You haven't seen Jesus with your eyes. You haven't touched the scars on his body. But none of those things are necessary because God is able to speak spiritual life into hearts and souls. And God comes and does the convincing that it was because of his great love and mercy that he sent Jesus into the world. And that it was for your sins that Jesus died. That it was your condemnation that Jesus took upon himself. That it was your penalty that he paid. That it was your forgiveness and acceptance with God that he secured on your behalf. And because he rose and now lives forever that you too may have new and everlasting life. And even though you've never seen him, even though you never heard him, 
even though you can never touch him. Yet you do see him. And you do hear him. And you know him. Do you believe? Will you believe on him? These things are written down, said John, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. See, it's through the pages of the Bible that Jesus is seen and heard and known today. And that believing, you will have life in his name. Will you turn from your sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who bids you come to him and trust in him alone? Will you be safe from God's eternal judgment? Because from now on and forever, your life is hidden with God in Christ who paid in full the penalty for your sins? No, you, you can't touch him and see him like the disciples did but we have their testimony that in believing we have life in his name perhaps this morning you can join in with the singing of our closing hymn and for the very first time this morning these words will be your personal testimony as you sing them. In Christ alone, my hope is found. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ.